There's a little children's hymn that goes like this. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. For the Father up above is looking down in love. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Oh, be careful, little ears, what you hear. Oh, be careful, little ears, what you hear. For the Father up above is looking down in love. Oh, be careful, little ears, what you hear. It goes on. Our tongue, our hands, our feet. It's teaching us the importance of of our actions. That everything we do, we do in the presence of an all-seeing God. But can I suggest to you that there is... One thing above all that you should be careful about? It's what you think about God. A.W. Tozer tells us what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The thoughts that come to your mind when you think about God are the most important thoughts you will think and they are the most important thing about you. Why? Because you move toward or away from your mental image of God. If you believe Him to be good and just and holy and sovereign and Savior, you will move toward Him. But if you think him unfair or uncaring, uninterested or unable, you will move away from him. This morning we find God's people thinking hard, cynical, jaded thoughts towards God. And through these thoughts, we actually see just how far they are from him. And through his response, we see just how merciful he is towards them. And yet we also see that his mercy will come to an end. Well, what were they thinking? How does God respond? And what can we learn? Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Malachi chapter 2, verse 17? Malachi chapter 2, verse 17. We're in a series this fall on Haggai and Malachi, two smaller prophets in the Old Testament. You can find Malachi if you open up to Matthew and just turn one book to the left. If you're using the blue Bibles in front of you, it's on page 802. And we're just going to start by reading verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? First of all, just remember some context. Each section of the book of Malachi is marked out by a similar format. The Lord makes a statement, the people respond, 
And then the Lord responds to their response. So, 1-1, the Lord says, I've loved you. God's people say, how have you loved us? The Lord goes on to remind them of his sovereign election in choosing them. 1-6, the Lord says, you're despising me. God's people say, how are we despising you? The Lord goes on to point out their lackluster worship, and that reveals how little they actually think of him, no matter what they say. And then 2.13 says, the Lord says, you cover the altar with tears because I no longer accept your worship. God's people say, why don't you accept our worship? The Lord says, it's because you're trying to worship me while blatantly disregarding my law. Now, just from these reminders, aren't you kind of embarrassed for Israel here? I mean, the way that they're acting, their, their disobedience and their disregard for God's law, combined with their seeming cluelessness about it, is a bit cringeworthy, to be honest with you. And the cringe just gets worse in verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? Look, wearied usually refers to exhaustion that comes from a hard day's work. But the creator of the ends of the earth who never grows tired or weary from all that he does, friends, is actually wearied by his people at this point. How have they wearied him? By their foolish accusations. There are two of them here. Foolish accusation number one, the Lord is unrighteous. God's people have wearied him by saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Now some context might be helpful for you here. Remember, Malachi takes place after Israel was exiled to Babylon for 70 years. This is after that. They're back in the land of promise. But frankly, that's about all Israel's got going for it right now. They are only a remnant in the land. It's only a a small portion of the land that they're occupying. There's... No Davidic king on the throne. And and even though the temple's constructed, it's a sorry, pathetic excuse of a temple in comparison to Solomon's. And the glory of God hasn't filled it. And you see, this ran contrary to all of Israel's expectations. They're looking for restoration as a nation. They're looking for the glory of God to fill his temple. They're looking for exaltation among the nations and and his judgment to fall on the wicked. But none of that is happening. In fact, looking at the facts square in the face, it's the godless nations who are prospering. And they're the ones who are struggling. Now, this is an age-old problem. Read Psalm 73 this afternoon. Just open up your Bibles and read Psalm 73 this afternoon. When you do, you're going to see just how much the psalmist 
wrestled with the reality of the wicked prospering and the righteous seemingly abandoned. Basically, the the psalmist is like this. Everything's great for them and everything's terrible for me. And that can lead you to doubt the goodness of God. It can lead you to doubt the faithfulness of God. It can lead you to doubt the love of God. And all of that impacts your love for God. Well, the psalmist wrestled with these things, but in the end, he came through his dark night of the soul, strengthened in his faith and in his love for God. But Israel here, Israel here is not like the psalmist. Israel has gone past the point of saying, this is hard, I'm struggling with this, I don't understand what God is doing, and he seems so absent, she's well beyond that, she's come to a frightening and blasphemous conclusion that God is unrighteous. She's asserting that God is pleased with the wicked. Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. That is a shocking statement. To suggest that God is delighted in the wicked is sheer nuts. But That's the accusation they're making. And the second accusation is like it. Foolish accusation number two. The Lord is absent. Where is the God of justice, they ask. Now, in some of their previous questions, we we haven't known exactly how to take them. So, is it an honest question? Or is it a jaded question? We haven't known for some of them. The text hasn't really led us on. But this one, there's really no doubt. Given what they just said, this is not an honest question. It's a jaded and cynical criticism of God himself. Where is the God of justice? This God who is supposedly just, where is he? Answer, he's absent. He's given up on acting altogether. That's what they say. He's absent. He's given up on acting altogether. Now, this is crazy too. How in the world did they end up here? Well, again, remember the context. The wicked nations surrounding them are not experiencing the judgment of God. And God did promise judgment for wickedness. Isaiah 13, 11 says... I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. That's the promise of God for the wicked. But it's not happening. Where is this God then? He's left the world to rotate on its own insane axis. That's what they say. And that's a crazy statement. Now, I actually want to step back and I want you to see something important here. What's revealed here is something scary. 
Israel's underlying assumption in both of these accusations is that they are actually good. Spiritually speaking, they are okay. In calling God unjust for not bringing his judgment, what does that assume? It assumes that his judgment is obviously not going to fall on them. In criticizing God for his absence, what does that assume? It assumes that his presence would be a blessing upon them. Point is, they don't see anything wrong with themselves. In their mind, they're, they're okay with God. They're right with God. And God, well, he's really let us down. I hope you see just how ridiculous this is. For Israel to bring these accusations to the Lord is the height of spiritual blindness and arrogance. Their worship is lackluster. Their obedience is half-hearted. They're blatantly disregarding God's law concerning their marriages. And yet they think well of themselves and God is the problem? It is a good thing that you and I are not God. Because if we were, I think we'd be done with this wayward people at this point. But God is much more merciful than we are. So how does he respond? Well, read verses 1 through 5 with me. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and the fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings of righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old and in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and fatherless against those who thrust aside the sojourner, and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. This is a promise that God will come. He will. He is not absent. He is not unjust. He will come, and he will judge the wicked. But praise God, he is first going to prepare and purify his people. And when I say his people... That includes us, his church. Verse 1 says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Now, in the ancient Near East, before a king would visit a province in his empire, he would send an envoy ahead of him. Why would he do that? Well, he would do that so that adequate preparations could be made for his arrival. This would include preparing the way for the royal procession by perhaps straightening roads and removing anything that would get in the way. And as a result, there was a a straight and level path for, for the king and his entourage to arrive on. 
Well, the Lord here promises to do something similar. For the king of kings comes, he will send a messenger to prepare the way ahead of him. And we don't have to do any guesswork. This messenger is John the Baptist. Mark 1.1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. And he goes on to quote both Isaiah and Malachi, and he says this, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Malachi 3.1 is about the ministry of John the Baptist who came to prepare the way for King Jesus. Not, not through straightening roads that Jesus might be welcomed into Jerusalem, Jerusalem physically, but through straightening hearts through proclaiming repentance that Jesus might be welcomed by his people. You know that such a forerunner was necessary is a warning to God's people in Malachi's day. Whatever it was that they were thinking, they were actually not ready to receive their king. And so God says, I'm going to send a forerunner. But of course, who comes after the forerunner? The king. Look at the second phrase in verse 1. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. You know, the people wanted the Lord to come to the temple. They did. Oh God, come to the temple. Well, let me just tell you, he's going to come. But he's not going to come how they think. He's going to come in the person of Jesus Christ. Luke 2 says this. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the law, He took him up in his arms and he blessed God and he said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For mine eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all the peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. Jesus is the Lord who came to his temple. He is also the messenger of the covenant. Look at that next phrase. Uh, Just take a look. Actually, I'm going to read starting in verse 1 just for clarity's sake. Malachi 3.1 says this. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. That's John the Baptist. Clear enough. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. That's Jesus. Clear enough. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Well, who's that? Well, it's not the addition of a third person. 
nor is it jumping back to John the Baptist. And we know that because of where the text goes next, by the way. After saying the messenger of the covenant is coming, it goes on to say, but who can endure the day of his coming? So this isn't referring to John the Baptist. It's referring to Christ. It's another title for Christ. Not only is Christ the Lord, Christ is also the messenger of the covenant. Jesus fulfills a prophetic office in that, like John, his message is a message of repentance. What did John preach? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, what did Jesus preach? Same thing. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so what you have here, after the introduction of John the Baptist is a sustained reflection on Jesus all the way through verse 5. And so what I want to do is I just want to slow down and I want us to consider what it is we learn about Him and what it is we learn about ourselves. Verse 2. But who can endure the day of His coming? And who can stand when he appears? Those are frightening questions if you look at them honestly. Who can endure? Who can stand? Those are rhetorical questions that don't really need an answer. The answer is no one. The prophets foresaw the day of the Lord as a terrifying day. Joel 2, the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Now, the question may well be asked, well, which coming of Christ does this refer to? It is true that the distinction between the first and the second coming of Christ was not always clear to the prophets. It's also true that the prophets could merge events connected with them. The thinking might be then that verse 1 refers to Christ's first coming, and then verse 2 refers to Christ's second coming. But to that thought... I just want to quote commentator John McKay at length because he's so good. He says this, quote, We must avoid the simple approach whereby the first, I'm sorry, we must avoid too simple an approach whereby the first coming of Christ is equated with salvation only and the second with judgment only. Although we are told that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world would be saved through him, John 3.17. Yet Jesus also said, For judgment I have come into the world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Friends, the reality is Jesus came both to save and to judge. And in saying Who can endure the day of his coming in this context? What Malachi is doing is exposing the fact that his hearers in their current state, they are not ready for his appearing. His appearing will mean judgment for them. And why? Because they think they're okay with God. They do not love the Lord as evidenced by their disobedience to Him, and yet they want the Lord to come and exalt them. That's just foolish, stupid arrogance, right? 
their high opinion of themselves, what will it do? Let me tell you what it'll do. It will lead them to reject Jesus when he comes. And by the way, the same thing happens today. I think the consistent temptation in the heart of every man, woman, and child is to think highly of ourselves. To think our sins small. To think our character good. And to think of God as owing us a good life. And then to think poorly of Him when He doesn't deliver according to our unrealistic expectations. Friends, that kind of attitude is so wrong. It is so offensive to God. It is cringeworthy. You know that cringe you had, or I hope you had, when you read about Israel a bit ago? Well, you're cringeworthy too. Which is why, if you remain in that condition, you won't stand in the day of the Lord either. Which is why you need the purifying ministry of Jesus Christ. Pick back up with me halfway through verse 2. For he is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. I love these verses. Refiners and launderers That fuller soap thing is getting at the idea of somebody laundering. Refiners and launderers, they don't destroy. They purify. Refiners purify precious metals. Launderers purify clothing. The precious, the previous question asked, who can stand in the day of the Lord? And the implication is, they, it's, it's, they won't. Nobody will. But then please note what the king does. He himself will take action to make his people acceptable. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like silver and gold. This is fulfilled in what Christ does. He loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Christ is the refiner and the purifier of His people. And His people, on this side of the cross, is anyone who believes on His name. His people are not those who descend from Abraham according to the flesh, natural Israelites. His people is His church. It's anyone, Jew or Gentile, who believe in the name of Jesus. He is said to refine the sons of Levi. The sons of Levi are the priests. And in the New Testament, guess who that is? It's the whole church. 
We are a holy priesthood. 1 Peter 2.5 We are a royal priesthood. 1 Peter 2.9 We are priests of God and of Christ. Revelation 20 verse 6 And so this purifying, this cleansing promised in this text, it is a promise fulfilled through the cross of Christ. On the cross, Jesus took upon Himself the sins of all those He came to save. All our arrogance. All our pride. All our half-hearted worship and disregard for His law. He took all of our sin upon Himself. He was punished in our stead. He died and then He rose again. And through placing our trust in Him, we are made pure in God's sight, cleansed from our sin. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my cleansing, this I see. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my pardon, this my plea, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. That's what's promised in this text. You see, this, this is the only thing that will make you acceptable in His sight. This is the only way you will stand in the day of the Lord. You must be purified by Christ Himself. It is the only way. And I want to point out something else here too. Through faith in Jesus, we are cleansed once for all. That's true. That's justification. It is a once-for-all legal reality in the heavenly courts. But then, after that, do you know what happens in terms of, of living our lives? Christ begins to purify us in real time. His refining and His purifying work is a work that goes on every day until we stand before Him on the last day. And do you know what one of the main things He uses to purify us is? Suffering. Difficulty. Trials. The very things that can tempt us to think poorly of God, like the Israelites were in this text, are the very things that He actually intends for our eternal good. In this you rejoice, Peter says, though for a little while, if necessary, and it is necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, 
so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various kinds of trials. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And what's the result of a purified people? What's the fruit of a people who give their lives to God as an offering of worship. Right after he speaks of this purifying work that the Lord will do, the text goes on to say, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then, then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and the former years. This again anticipates the church, all of us, giving our lives as living sacrifices, Romans 12.1, being zealous for good works, Titus chapter 2, offering up a, a sacrifice of praise, Hebrews 13. You, you see, as it is, as it is that we are purified, it is as we are purified once for all through justification, and then throughout our lives in sanctification, it, it is as we are purified that we are fit for His use and we bring Him the honor He deserves and desires. And all of this comes through Christ, through His work of redemption, accomplished and applied. But what about those who refuse him? Well, judgment will ultimately come. Verse 5 says this, Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. He, he brings up big categories of violation according to the Mosaic law. And the deal is, Israel, what did they do? They mistook God's delayed justice as his absence. It is not his absence, though. It is his mercy designed to bring them to repentance. His delayed justice is not his absence. It's his mercy designed to lead sinners to repentance. But judgment will ultimately come. And I wonder if you this morning are thinking something similar. I wonder if you think judgment will never come. I wonder if you're like the people in 2 Peter 2, our scripture reading this morning, thinking, even if only subconsciously, all things continue as they have from the beginning of the creation. Implication, judgment's not coming. Or I wonder if you think judgment may be coming, but it's coming for someone else. 
Friend, judgment is coming. Paul tells us that when the Lord Jesus comes again, he will come, quote, with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of His might. Judgment is coming. And unless you have been purified by the blood of Jesus Christ, it is coming for you. We know not when, but it is coming. And when it comes, the opportunity for mercy will be over. God is more merciful than you can ever imagine, but His mercy will come to an end. And so I just want to circle back. I want to circle back to the question I asked in the introduction. I want to circle back to your thoughts about God. If you're not in Christ, I don't know what you think about God. You might think He's pleased with you because you've done your best to be decent. You might think He's pleased with you in comparison to others because you're pretty good in comparison to the example that you're looking at. You might think He's pleased with you because you've embraced the gospel of our current world, which is the gospel of be true to yourself. I don't know exactly what you're thinking, but here's what I know. Whatever you believe about God, if it doesn't lead you to cry out for His mercy and grace through Jesus Christ, it's cringeworthy. You, if you think you will stand in the day of the Lord on your own two feet, you are deceived and you will be damned. The only way you can be made right is through turning from your sin and trusting in Jesus Christ to save you from your sin. You must be purified by Him. His blood must cover you and then and only then will you be acceptable in His sight and offer your life to Him as worship, which He is due as your Creator and Savior and Judge. Now, those of you who name the name of Christ... Don't let yourself off the hook. You see, this passage, it's written to people who thought that they were okay with God. It's written to people who thought they'd done all the things. They were circumcised. They celebrated the Passover. Heck, they returned to the land and they rebuilt the temple. This is written to church people. 
but their hearts were cold towards God, disobedient to God, disinterested in God. They were not ready for the coming of God. Are you ready for the coming of God? Are you ready for Jesus to come? And my plea to you is don't be too quick to say yes. You see, the faith that saves is faith that leads to hating sin. And God defines what sin is, not our culture and not our emotions and not our psychology and not our thoughts. The faith that saves is a faith that leads to hating sin and loving God and really living for Him in our daily lives. This is not what Israel is doing, and God's promise to Israel is that they will not stand in the judgment. Is this what you are doing? And if so, why do you think you will fare any different? You will not. Hebrews tells us without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Nobody on that day can say, but I believed in Jesus. He will say, no, without holiness, you will not see the Lord. Listen, the proof of salvation is not the fact that you say you believe in Jesus, but it is a life lived in obedience to God. And listen, the gospel is never an excuse for sin. Maybe there's some repenting you need to do this morning. Maybe half-hearted worship. Maybe disinterest in God. Maybe a divided heart that kind of wants to serve God and kind of wants to serve sin. Maybe you think cold and hard thoughts towards God. Maybe you think He's done you wrong. Maybe you think He hasn't held up his end of the bargain. Friend, do you know when it is that we tend to think that? It's when things aren't well. We never think God's done us wrong when things are well. We think God's done us wrong when things aren't well. Things weren't well for Israel in today's text and they they blamed him for it. Don't you know that when things aren't well, that's actually not an accident, but something that God in His sovereign goodness is using to sanctify you and draw you closer to Himself and form you into the image of Christ? I'm also kind of shocked at how quickly it is that we blame God for our own sin. Like when our marriages aren't good and then we blame him for giving us this spouse. 
instead of actually repenting of our sin for how we treat one another in our marriage and then seeking to obey Him. I, I'm, I'm interested also, I'm and kind of shocked at how when our children are disobedient and we don't appropriately exercise our authority over them and then we blame God for disobedient children. instead of doing the hard work of parenting. I'm also shocked when we sin, and then what we do is we justify our sin, like turning to pornography or turning to alcohol or, or turning to something forbidden, and we do it because things are hard, and then we say, well, we have to do it in order to kind of make things better because things are so hard. That's blaming it on God too. What we actually have to do is determine in our hearts to give our lives in worship and obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ, come what may, trusting that He is working for our good and for His glory. And we will walk with Him until that day And we will stand before Him and be accepted. All because of Christ. His work on the cross. Accomplished. Applied. And lived out. Let's pray. Lord, we ask You to shape our thoughts. Father, please don't let us define our realities and our lives and our responses. Please, Father, may we submit ourselves to you and to your word, to your gospel, to your son. And may we give ourselves wholeheartedly to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.